Welcome to Trine Day's The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Jeffrey Gilson, former British Conservative Party activist who spoke at two national conventions, helped write speeches for Margaret Thatcher, and did the same in the U.S. for former governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis. Jeff's Trine Day book is Maggie's Hammer, how investigating the mysterious death of my friend uncovered another world of illegal arms deals, political slush funds, high-level corruption, and Britain's 30-year secret role as America's hired gun. Jeff and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, uh, Jeff, for coming on. Yeah, Maggie's Hammer uh, is an amazing book because it really helps explain a lot which uh, happens in the shadows because, uh, well, you know, I, I talk a lot about, uh, oh, the drug trade and whatnot. Well, kind of hand in glove with the drug trade a lot of times is the, is the arms trade. And then, and then you have one other thing there, it's called money, you know? What are you gonna do with it? First tell people, you know, what your book is, what it, what it talks about. Well, Let's work on the basis that most people who watch a podcast or read an article get to the end of the first paragraph and decide whether they're going to continue. So why on earth should anyone listen to this British guy talking about a book about England in the 80s? Answer, Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell. Right there, two very important characters in what's going on in America in secret covert stuff, they got their start in England. Not only did they get their start in England, they got their start with the same group of people that the subject of my book was a part of, a senior part of. If there are things you do not understand in America or the world today, whether it's Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, the Ukraine, the answer is the same every time. All roads lead back to the 80s, and all roads in the 80s lead back to London. The city of London is the nefarious money laundering capital of the world. It has been ever since the East India Company. That, that, that company that's in the Pirates of the Caribbean with all the baddies and the villains in it, it's real, it actually existed. It was the private company that financed all of the British exploration, which discovered the Americas, uh, discovered in inverted commas, long after the Native Americans had been living there for several thousand years, and discovered India and discovered Africa. They're a very real company and they financed everything and they became much of what was later the city of London, which is less a government institution than still a private corporation. And they are interested in one thing, making money. And they make money however they can. And they will happily bank for drug kingpins, uh, people who are trying to put together coup d'etat. If you want a mercenary, you go to London. You want a coup d'etat, you go to London. You want to launder your money, you go to London. And that's what my book is about. That's not how it started out. This all began in 1988 when I was living in a small, suburb just to the west of London called Beaconsfield, 20 miles outside of London. All those movies that you see with quaint little Tudor-like houses and little cars and stuff, that's where I grew up. Sleepy little town, 
Um, I hooked up with a guy called Hugh Simmons, who was into politics. I wanted to get into politics. I wanted to be a member of parliament. I joined his law firm. He was a sole practitioner. And uh, we were all geared in 1988 to, for him to enter parliament. Until November the 15th, 1988, he turned up dead in local woods, apparently having committed suicide. His death, surprisingly, actually made national headlines at the time. Uh, he had been a speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher, which is how I ended up also writing speeches for her. He was uh, a rising star in the British Conservative Party, uh, and he was well known. He'd been a mayor of Beaconsfield. And so that made uh, national headlines. Well, it made further national headlines when it was reported that some $7 million was missing from his client's bank account, the bank account where he keeps his client's money. At the time, all sorts of theories were advanced as to why this money had disappeared. Um, he was no angel, but this didn't make sense. And it certainly didn't make sense to me. I was his senior employee. And I was up the creek without a paddle because being his senior employee in a law firm, I couldn't get a job. So I had to find out what happened. And you say, well, there are authorities. The, the authorities weren't interested. Um, later on in my investigations, there were some questions as to why they weren't interested. But at the time, they just weren't interested. They had a dead body, $7 million missing. And as far as they were concerned, they didn't need to look any further. I did because I needed to find an officer and because it didn't make sense. He was a, he was a close friend. I was um, very close with his young children who were 11 and eight at the time. Since then, I've said to a lot of people who complain that there are things going on in the world they don't understand. Jeffrey Epstein used to be somebody's neighbor. Ghislaine Maxwell used to be somebody's neighbor. Hunter Biden still is somebody's neighbor. We all have neighbors. If you see something going on in your village or your town or your community, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't add up. The chances are it doesn't add up. Don't leave it to somebody else to ask questions. You might be sitting on the next national scandal. Everybody's got, a, you know, everybody who ends up in a scandal was somebody's neighbor and they got away with it because nobody asked. Well, I asked, started asking exactly the right questions in all the wrong places and found myself in several years of roller coaster James Bond type activity, got shot at in Glasgow, intervened with the CIA, met with a, a Mossad agent in Canada, all trying to find out what had happened to this guy I just thought was a simple solicitor from a little town in England, when it turned out that he was much more than that. You lifted back the curtain. What did you find? Um, I discovered that he had been a senior officer in MI6. MI6 is Military Intelligence 6, and it is the civilian equivalent of the CIA. One of the things I discovered is that there's um, quite an interesting covert relationship between civilian and military intelligence. None of this is as clear-cut as people would make. Uh, when, when there are, for instance, operations to get rid of Osama bin Laden, we hear about SEAL Team 6. What you don't hear about is the civilians who are brought in to do things, or when there are civilian operations, the military people who are brought in to do. There's lots of, lots of gray area. Nowadays, with so many private contractors in the CIA, that gray area is easier for people to understand than it was, say, back in the 80s. And Hugh occupied that gray area. 
Um, he was highly trained, which I did not know, but was still a civilian and was not and was a contract agent. He was also a trained assassin, which I didn't know until several years after beginning my investigations. Why is this book of any interest to people in America? It involves a lot of stuff that's in America, but actually it's, it's an everyman's book. It's a journeyman's book. It's the journey of one person asking questions about a friend and a neighbor. It could happen in America, it could happen in South Africa, Australia, Russia, France. They all have covert stuff going on. They all have neighbors. And the point is, this could be you. It's a roadmap in how to discover what's going on around you. So again, you're gonna to have to read the book to find out how funny, how frightening, how extraordinary some of these situations were. I would literally go and put myself on doorsteps and ask people questions. Uh, back in London in 1990, I was selling advertising space. And this person turns up one day, we're working together for two weeks, and we go out for a drink. And he mentions drops, that little hint that he used to be in the CIA. Well, I'm asking anybody I can. So I go and speak to him and I, we arrange to meet at his house on a London, a Sunday afternoon. He's in his thirties, he's got a wife, he's got a nice child, she's about five, we're playing around and then he ushers them out and we start talking and he says, what do you want to know? And I said, look, I've got this thing that happened and if I wanted to contact the CIA, do some background, see if I could find out whether it meant anything or not, what would I do? He said, you don't do that, that's not how it works. How does it work? You get contacted. You, if you start causing a fuss, you'll be contacted in some way. Well, that's kind of reactive. I actually want to, you know, is there not a 1-800-HELP-ME-CIA number or something? He said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, Jeff. So, so what did you do? And he said, I can't really tell you what I did, but I was in the CIA and I was in the SEALs and stuff. And, but a lot of my work was just watching. Capital W. We have tens of thousands of people around the world we're in government, we're doing whatever, and someone comes along and taps us on the shoulder and says, keep an eye on something over there for us. You just let us know. It's like, oh, okay. Um, but there's nothing I can do. No, no, no. Trust me, Jeffy, if, if you know something happens, you, you'll, you'll be told, you know, stop doing it. Oh, okay. So we had a couple of drinks of wine and played with his kid again and go to the front door and, you know, he pulls the door behind him and I'm like, what's this all about? And he says, Jeff, yeah, by the way, yeah, the message is stop it. And I said, Am I, are you saying what I think I'm, you're saying? And he said, yes, stop it now. And he went back in and he shut the door and I left. And the next day I went back and the entire house was empty. That's how it's done. You may ask, why didn't I stop it? And the answer is because I'm stupid. <laughs> uh, I can think of at least three occasions where the CIA have warned me off. If they wanted me dead, I've been told perfectly, bluntly by Arid Ben Menashe, one of your stable of authors. He was a very high profile Mossad agent back in the 80s. He's still around, still up to no good. I am convinced he is not a former agent. He is still a very live agent. Bless his heart. I love him. For Israel does things for them. He is the man who uh, was the major revelation for the Iran-Contra situation back in the 80s. And especially he was the gentleman who revealed the fact that Oliver North was a distraction. The 1,000 TOW missiles that Oliver North was selling for a, a billion dollars was nothing compared to the $80 billion in arms 
that Ari ben Menashe was helping to arrange. And as he said to me uh, in, in explaining why I'm still alive, he said, people like us, they can't kill us, Jeff. I know too much. I'm not the sort of person they want to kill. They want to use me. And I said, so, but they don't want to use me. What about me? He said, and he read this with the greatest respect. No one's heard of you. No one cares. However, the moment you turn up in a canal dead, then people are going to start taking an interest. And he said, remember, when you came to me, you gave me some information. I went away and I checked the dates. And I discovered that your man, Hugh Simmons, was a significant link in the global money laundering that we were engaged in. But he wasn't using that name. It will not take anybody investigating your death very long to lead back to everything that was happening in the 80s. And he said, that's the point. Once they get there, then they get into stuff globally that they do not want released. So I'm safe. And he said, pretty much. Yes. Somehow I discovered a lot of stuff that I wasn't supposed to discover. I didn't think I was doing anything particular, but my life was shattered. I had to get answers. The only way I could get answers was by directly asking people, telephoning them, writing to them, and then pursuing them and, and, and hammering them. And more than once, I had very interesting people, including Harry, say, why are you doing this? And I said, well, first of all, I care about his children. And secondly, I need answers for myself. And I, I told him some stories about how I'd had a very interesting interaction with several British intelligence agents who wondered what I was doing and had me followed and so on. And he said, that's the reason. It's not that you were seen as being dangerous. You were seen as being odd. And I said, yes, and that's why you get away with it. He said, yes, of course, that's why we get away with it. Nobody thinks that the, the person they work for, the person living next door, is an agent. But they have to because they have to live somewhere. They have to send their kids to school. But if they are engaged in something that looks a bit strange, like, oh, my gosh, did I hear a gunshot last night? Carter done. This is Acacia Avenue in Littlewood, Essex. It wouldn't be a gunshot. Well, it was a gunshot. It was somebody being killed and they were cleaned away. But you didn't bother to follow through, so you didn't find out. I, on the other hand, said Harry and others, you keep asking questions when most people don't. That puts me there, but why are you talking to me? He said, two reasons. Well, three reasons. He said, I'm talking to you because you might be useful. I'm also talking to you because I kind of like you. And you're kind of weird. I was told this by more than one person. You are a very easy person to speak to. So you're giving away international secrets to somebody because I'm easy to speak to. Yeah, would you like to give me some money? Well, you're not that easy to speak to, Jeff. Okay, fine. And as God is my witness, Apparently, this is why so many people spoke to me. They wanted to find out what I know. Some of what I told them was apparently quite useful. And they were happy to share with me because that's the game of double agency and triple agency. Swap information, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. that's one thing that I've, that I've found is that a lot of action happens in, in, when you have double, triple, and quadruple agents because you've got people running around that... They don't really know why they're doing this, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're put into that position and they get very useful to the people sitting back at their desk so that they can move information around and find out who knows what and all this type of stuff. So there's a lot of activity in that double, triple and quadruple agent realm. One, one of the things that I 
discovered and was told, and um, this is where it just, it just gets fun. My primary British intelligence agent was a gentleman called Reginald von Zugbach de Sag. Google him, he exists. Reginald von Zugbach de Sag. He is, by the way, Chris, now dead. He died last year, which is sad. Um, he'd become a little crazy. He was a senior officer in military intelligence, and he was, my, he was Hugh's primary partner. And I got him to talk to me on exactly the same basis when I first went to him. He didn't want to talk to me. And then I just sat there telling him all the things I discovered and so on. And, and, and he took the same view. First of all, he wasn't sure who I was. And um, he wanted to find out. And he was the one, in fact, who shot at me and then decided that maybe he wouldn't go on shooting at me and would instead try to use me. And then just became a friend because he said, you know, it's extraordinary that you are doing this. Intelligence is, is, is like that. I mean, it's it's a weird milieu. Now, you discovered all this information. We've, we've got it in a book. Now, you obviously tried to get this into newspapers in Britain, right? I mean, did you talk to journalists there? And what, what would happen when you would present this story to them? And, and what reason would they give to you that they didn't run with it? My early investigations, I, I met up with... Um, a gentleman called Kevin Carhill. He explained to me that in the 80s, through Hugh and a small group of other people, the Conservative Party had decided to make money illegally out of profiteering from arms deals. And that a group had been set up around Margaret Thatcher who was aware of this. Now, that was the first time I had a story that was beyond just what happened to my mate. Um, I went to the newspapers and I asked them if they were interested. I got some interesting responses, including one from Kevin Kyle and another from Richard Norton, Norton Taylor. You can Google Richard Norton Taylor. He's a senior investigative journalist. One of the things I've discovered about investigative journalists in Great Britain, those who investigate national security matters, is they're all in the pocket of the intelligence agencies anyway. What happens is you send out people all over the world with information and they sell themselves and they trade information. And that's how intelligence agencies get information. A double agent is the only person who knows who is his master because he's selling information all over the place, getting information back, passing it on, putting some away for a rainy day to protect himself. It's a very sick enterprise undertaken by people who are not right in the head. That's how intelligence agencies get their information. And actually, this is how journalists work as well. They're just double agents. Journalists don't investigate and discover stuff that you know intelligence agencies, agencies are hanging on to. They deal with intelligence agencies and intelligence agencies will give them some nuggets and they'll also sell them a few things that are lies because they want well-known journalists like Richard Norton Taylor to sell misinformation. And everybody knows the game. So I go to some journalists uh, in England and try to sell the story. And Kevin Kyle and Richard Norton Taylor both stopped talking to me because they were told they had been warned of. And I said, well, surely that goes with the territory. And they both said, yes, but this was a serious warning off. We were told our lives were in danger. Uh, Reggie told me that a journalist friend of his who had been investigating this had ended up dead. So I said, well, okay. So I've I tripped, I tripped across something. Kevin Kyle gave me chapter and verse on precisely what the Conservative Party had been doing to make money 
uh, from arm cells. And we sort of worked out where Hugh had fit in. That's in the book. You may say, so what? The so what is, it's still happening. In the 80s, and this much I discovered from Ari Benmanashi, there was the war between Iran and Iraq. These were two huge oil producers. They still are. Billions of dollars of money to spend. They were at war with each other. And in the 80s, Iraq spent $60 billion buying arms. Iran spent $80 billion buying arms. This is a significant amount of money. And the point that Ari made to me was, in the 80s wasn't about intelligence and politics. It was about corruption. He said there was that much money floating around from arms sales. And he said every major politician, every major intelligence agency, every major political party was involved in this and in making money out of it. And he said, interestingly enough, as far as your friend is concerned, almost every country in the Western world got caught up in an arms scandal. France with their president, um, Mitterrand. Italy with a craxy, uh, the, the Italian prime minister, who had to flee the country in order not to be imprisoned. The Netherlands, the king, who had uh, the queen, who had to stand down. Uh, I think it was Beatrice because of her husband being involved in arms dealing. Spain, all of these countries had major scandals in the 80s arising out of arms dealing. And the arms dealing network became a huge enterprise primarily based out of America. Those of you who have read books about Oliver North and the 80s, well, remember words like the enterprise, the octopus. These were international networks set up to trade in drugs and money and in arms. And this was the foundation for the arms dealing that was going on in the 80s, primarily triggered by Iran and Iraq. And the involvement of my book and Hugh and all of this is that through his connections with the city of London, as a lawyer, he was trained in money laundering. Well, it wasn't called money laundering back then. It was, I think, tax avoidance and money management. It was a, in, in, in Great Britain, it was a legitimate profession. He was a, a part of a, a group that was a primary money launderer. Money laundering that involved CIA, Mossad, the Israelis, Ari Ben Menashe, Jeffrey Epstein, and others in the 80s, in Europe and in the Middle East and in America. The money laundering routes they were using were primarily the city of London and apparently, primarily, my guy Hugh. Right. And then later on, they uh, used their propaganda fount to blame it all on a uh, uh, Russian guy, Victor Bout, and called him the merchant of death for you know, moving a small amount of stuff where other people highly related to government officials, you know, were moving 10 times, um, 20 times as many arms. What on earth does this have to do with now? In the 80s, you have this massive worldwide enterprise operating out of America. The octopus, the enterprise, if you Google it, you will find it. Oliver North, CIA flights out of Mesa, Arkansas, and Mina. Mina, thank you, which Governor Clinton allowed, reputedly the reason why the CIA backed his bid for president and why he won against George Bush. Actually, there was a deal. There, there was a deal. Clinton is just a lieutenant in the Bush crime family, and there was a deal with uh, George H.W. that 
if he only got four years, his son got eight. Well, Great Britain was the money laundering side of that. I thought at the end of the 80s and what was happening was happenstance. Harry told me, but now it's become clear 30 years later, wasn't. There were a lot of individuals and a lot of networks that were rolled up at the end of the 80s. Harry found himself in prison in, I think, 91. He was rolled up. My mate ends up dead in 88. He was rolled up. There are other companies, a huge bank in uh, Spain went bust. BCCI, again, a name of a bank that some of your listeners may remember, that went bank bankrupt in 1991. Robert Maxwell, hugely important in this whole enterprise, uh, turns up face down in the Mediterranean in, I believe, 91. All of these things were rolled up at the end of the 80s because that episode was over. Then there was a hiatus in the 90s. I think a lot of the action moved to, to Africa. The problem is that those things that weren't rolled up, you have all these individuals and networks set up wanting to do something corrupt. They look for something. A lot of it had to do with, uh, I was told, Africa and blood diamonds. Then 9-11 comes along and suddenly the industry with a small eye is back. And in, in it's called the war on terror. And all those networks and all those informants and all those banking pathways, the city of London, money laundering is suddenly needed tenfold. So what was set up in the 80s became what you saw in the noughts and the teens, the rendering, the, uh, is it Blackstone? I don't know what the name of that group is. And Prince, all of that was already set up in some shape or form in the 80s. It took off in, in the noughts and continues to this day. Maxwell is an important thing. But Maxwell, British billionaire, what does he have to do with anything? He was a senior Labour Party politician and donor. One of the things that Harry told me that never, I could never understand was Robert Maxwell was doing business with Hugh. Hugh was his money launderer. He was a British Conservative politician. Why? And Harry said, arms, money. It still didn't make sense. But when I asked him about it, it was the one time Harry looked like he was truly scared. Now, going back to the 80s, so the Octopus, the Enterprise, the CIA on the one hand, the Israelis on the other hand, are organizing this major arms dealing in Iraq and Iran. $60 billion, $80 billion, the profits have to go somewhere. Huge amounts of profit, hundreds of millions of dollars. Ari arranged to have the money stored in Eastern Europe. Robert Maxwell was an important link there because Robert Maxwell uh, over the years had built up publishing and banking interests with the communist dictators in Eastern Europe and also with the Eastern European mafia. Uh, which was headed by a Bulgarian called Semyon Moyelovich, which, for those of you who are Googling, is in fact spelt Mogilevich, but it's pronounced Moilevich. Um, and he was the head of the Bulgarian mob and later became head of the Russian mob and is today still the head of the Russian mob. And that's how the money was stored in Eastern Europe. So Semyon Moyelovich, Ari Benminashi, Robert Maxwell, Hugh Simmons. Robert Maxwell turns up dead in 1991. Various stories are run about that. Was it the CIA who killed him because Robert Maxwell was stealing CIA money to put into his failing British publishing empire? Maybe. He was also blackmailing the Israelis to lend him money because of his failing enterprises in Great Britain. Mossad doesn't like being blackmailed. And somebody made the decision that it was time for him to go. 
there are various stories running around. Harry weren't Arpser, who was responsible uh, for Robert Maxwell's death, but he turned up dead. Still, your listeners are saying, what on earth does this have to do with your guy and anything today? Donald Trump and Ghislaine Maxwell. Donald Trump, yep. Donald Trump was also having money problems at this time in the early 90s. He was having trouble getting money out of New York banks. And this is when Donald Trump started covert and nefarious relationships with the Russian mob and with Saudi Arabians to fill his coffers, and in particular with Semyon Moyelovich. And essentially, Donald Trump stepped into Robert Maxwell's shoes. And instead of having the money laundered through Eastern Europe, the money was laundered through New York. You won't find this part in my book because it happens after my book. But if you want to find the sequel to what's going on in my book, um, you have to go to my blog, which is called Ticker Tape. Uh, Google Ticker Tape, one word, and Jeff Gilson. They very kindly direct you to my blog. Go and read the most recent articles and posts on my Facebook page, Jeff Gilson. That's with a G. But Donald Trump stepped into the shoes of Robert Maxwell. My mate turned up dead in 1988, and a gentleman called Bill Browder stepped into Hugh's shoes. Bill Browder eventually set up a, an investment firm in Moscow called Hermitage Trust and discovered in the Nords that you did business in Russia by doing business with Putin. And you were only allowed to make money in Russia if 50% of the directors of your company were appointed by the Russians, namely Putin. So he set up Hermitage Trust, Half the, half the board has to be Russians, and he's fine. Then he discovered through his accountant and lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, that in fact what the Russians were doing was using this company and all the other companies in Moscow to launder money out of the country, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Sergei Magnitsky and Bill Browd decided to expose this. Sergei Magnitsky was arrested at the end of the North, beginning of the teens was arrested, tortured, and died in prison. Bill Browder ran a campaign in America, and in 2000, and I believe 12, had passed in America something called the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act was something which said, this is terrible, this is awful. Anybody who is associated with this terrible death will have all of their foreign assets frozen, which included Putin, and apparently some $70 billion in assets he had sent abroad. But nobody knew this. All they knew was that suddenly Vladimir Putin was trying to affect elections all over the place in Great Britain and America uh, and in 2016 trying to buy Hillary Clinton and tried to buy Donald Trump and tried to buy congressmen. And every time Mueller and other people have gone into this and looked at it, they try to follow the trails, but they don't look at the why. And the why was there, Donald Trump Jr., explained it because he's not a very clever person when he was talking about that meeting i think it was the mayflower hotel in june of 2016 we went to get dirt on hillary clinton and suddenly this strange russian lawyer lady um who i think was either arrested or eventually expelled from america is talking to us about this thing called the magnitsky act all putin wanted to do was have that act repealed so it didn't affect his assets everything Vladimir Putin has been doing and is still doing, including in the Ukraine, concerns his money abroad, which was laundered 
through Samuel Moyelovich, who was helping Donald Trump, who had stepped into the shoes of Robert Maxwell, whose money launderer was Hugh Simmons, who set up the pathways. All the roads lead back to the 80s. All the roads lead to England. And a lot of those roads lead to my mate. That's why you need to read the book. Amen. The Iran-Iraq war comes to an end in 1988. Harry says in his book, and he said to me privately, at that stage, I was hired by Yitzhak Shamir, the Israeli prime minister, to become his counterterrorism advisor with a primary task. It was like, forget what's happened in the 80s when enemies became friends. Now we're back to being enemies again. Um, the war is over. We don't need to be selling arms to the Iranians to keep the Iraqis under control and vice versa. We, we now regard the primary threat to us in the Middle East as being Iraq. So no more arms dealing with Iraq. And he said, the problem is, amongst everything else that's going on, the Brits seem to be really cozy with Iraq. So the Brit thing needs to stop. That's your job. Stop the Brit thing. And that's when in his book, which is what made me contact him, there's the paragraph about him arranging for hit squads to go into Great Britain in 88 to kill the people associated with the Iraq pipeline of arms from Great Britain. And it was in November. And that's when I rang him and said, did you have to include my guy? And that's when he came back and he said, at first, the name didn't mean anything. Then we checked out and it's like, your friend was known to us. Did you kill him? Might have been the CIA, but I never did get a straight answer out of it. Wow. The important point is the Iraqi pipeline had to stop somehow. Now, I related this in my mind back to the way Hugh had been behaving in 1988. The beginning of the year, he's happy, he's boisterous, he's spending money. By the summer, he was violently ill. I knew then, even without all this other stuff, I knew that something had gone wrong. And I spoke to Ari, and this is a time at which he was becoming a little more circumspect. I was getting a little too close to Robert Maxwell and a little too close to Hugh. And I don't think he wanted to get too much into how Hugh ended up dead. And he said, look, Jeff, just understand that by the summer of 1988, your friend was on too many people's dirty laundry lists. He was no longer useful. One way or another, he was going to go. I suspect that what happened in 1988, much as, as, as was the case with me, if you had turned up dead at the, at, at, in, in the early summer of 1988, it would have looked unusual. I think he was threatened. And I think he tried various things during 1988 to get away from the threat. I think he tried to make money in other ways to replace it. I think he had people who were expecting money. I, I think some of his bank accounts were shut down and hacked. I think he was trying to make money other ways. I think he was being threatened. I think he was trying to make excuses. And I think sometime in the summer of 1988, his family was threatened. And he was essentially told, you can do what you like, Simmons. But if you, if you, if you die with an explanation, or you run away or whatever, your family will be hurt. I think that he decided he was going to run. And for that, he stole the $7 million from his client's account as his running away fund. The $7 million, it's still there, somewhere out there. The book is Maggie's Hammer, How Investigating the Mysterious Death of My Friend Uncovered a Netherworld of Illegal Arms Deals, Political Slush Funds, High-Level Corruption, 
and Britain's 30 year secret role as America's hired gun. And your blog is? If you Google those three words, ticker tape, one word, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, Gilson, it will take you to that blog. Okay. You know, the only way we're going to get somewhere is we need to understand where we've been. And it, it, it appears that uh, there's some people that keep trying to, uh, uh, like Bruce says, a fire hose, just miss and disinformation, you know, from both right, left, and center. And, you know, what, what, what's a people to do? It, it's just really uh, hard to, to understand where the world's at and try and make decisions to go forward. I mean, for all we have to do with it. Jeff, I wanna, I wanna thank you really a whole bunch if you have any last words it can happen to you if there's something going on down your road or in your village or your town and it doesn't make sense the chances are it doesn't make sense go and knock on a door ask some questions you may be surprised what you discover thank you very much jeff onwards <laughs>